As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. You are listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and over this third series, Alistair and I will be looking at some of the key themes and ideas in the Narnia Chronicles. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. On today's episode, we will be focusing on the horse and his boy. Alistair, we're going to be looking at uh, The Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis in this episode. Now, clearly we see all the way through the Narnia Chronicles that animals are really important. In fact, at one point it says that there was one human to every five animals. Do you think this is just because um, for children, animals were such an important part? Or is there something deeper that C.S. Lewis is trying to say by giving such a dominant position to animals in these stories? Well, I think he is picking up on the fact that children love animals. But there's clearly far more to this. And what we need to bear in mind is that in the late 1940s, Lewis was becoming very involved in um in criticising vivisection, in other words, the, the, the abuse of animals. And Lewis wrote a, a very famous paper uh, critiquing this in 1947. And one of the points he makes is that if human beings are at the height of God's creation, then from that position of privilege, they must respect animals. It's a very, very important point for him. And I think that one of the things I I note is that um, animals play a very important role in Narnia, particularly, I must say, in this book. And, you know, we might just begin by looking at that title more closely because I've seen it miswritten as the boy and his horse. Mm. But you see, it's not. It's the horse and his boy. The horse takes precedence. I think what what Lewis is really trying to say here is that both children and animals are often devalued. We need to recapture their significance and that this this is the, the novel, in my view, in which Lewis does this most effectively. Do we know if Lewis had any pets of his own? Well, there are stories that Lewis, uh, as a a child, may have had a dog or something like that. Um, But I have to say that um, Mrs. Moore had animals. I'm not sure Lewis was that fond of them. I think that what Lewis is really doing here is appealing to the instinctive love of children for animals. And, in effect, using that to develop some very important ideas. 
You mentioned in the first episode that we recorded that C.S. Lewis is keen to show that little people matter. Uh, Is that why a vulnerable child, in some senses, has such a key role in this book, do you think? Well, I think it is. In my view, this is the the Narnia novel, which shows this most clearly. It's the one that really focuses particularly on animals and children. I think it's a very good way of bringing this point out. I think that um, a bit like Lewis Carroll, you know, Alice in Wonderland, you know, animals there play quite an important role. I think what Lewis is really doing is is just saying, don't judge by appearances. You know, the, there's depth to animals, there's depth to children, and let's let's be respectful of this. Uh, there's a line which says Shasta had a fixed habit of never telling grown-ups anything if he could help it. He thought they would always spoil or stop whatever you were trying to do. And um, we've talked about the fact that a lot of the depiction of adults isn't particularly positive in in the Narnia Chronicles. But would would Lewis have agreed with this negative perception of adults, I, I guess, always spoiling children's fun? Well, we have to go back to Lewis's childhood, to um, himself and his brother at the uh, their house in Belfast, and being left on their own. And obviously, we don't know as much about that childhood as we would like to. But you could perhaps read this and then say, maybe Lewis is recalling episodes from his own childhood, or maybe his parents said, don't be so silly. Oh, who would believe that? You know, And Lewis, in effect, may have felt that his imagination was being stifled. But of course, there is a very important theme here. It's quite possible that Lewis is picking up on Christ's injunction in the Gospels, you know, which is about, um, you know, babes bringing forth wisdom. You know, that, that could be a very important point here that, um, you know, we need to become like children, you know. And what's that all about? Well, maybe it's because you see things that seem unfashionable or irrational to grown-ups who say, oh, don't talk such nonsense. But maybe maybe children do see things in a fresher, more realistic way, and we need to listen to them. Maybe that's one of the points Lewis is trying to bring out here. Now, the Calamines in this story worship Tash. We don't hear much specifically about this deity, at least in this book. But, but how does Lewis expect us to respond to this? What, what does he want us to think about them worshipping another god? Well, I think our initial instinct is to say, I wonder which god this is, because Lewis has to have something in mind. And actually, it's very difficult to work out what it might be, because um, we, we read about um, idols of Tash, which means it's definitely not Islam. Um, and I think it may just be this idea of the religious other, you know, that it, it's, it's something uh, indeterminate, which is hostile towards Aslan and towards what Lewis thinks is really important in Narnia. So maybe we should think of it more as the antithesis or certainly something that is opposed to um, what Lewis believes to be good, even if he talks about it in rather generic ways. I, I personally think that the whole question of what Tash represents or what the Calomines represent is not really a helpful question. I think it's in effect, we need to ask what is Lewis using Tash and the Calomines to actually bring out in relation to the overall story of Narnia. Rabadash is turned into a donkey at the end of the book, which, I mean, that in itself is a question, why is he turned into a donkey? Um, But then Aslan says, you've appealed to Tash, and in the temple of Tash, you shall be healed. Is he then suggesting that Tash is powerful enough 
to heal Rabadash, or is it perhaps that Aslan is giving Tash that power? What, what's going on there? It might be either of those, or it might be that there is this expectation that actually this won't happen at all. This will show up the deficiency on Tash's part. And there are a lot of points in this particular novel where there are statements made about Tash, and it's very, very difficult to actually work out what Lewis means and where he's taking us. Um, so I, I think we, we, this is perhaps a, a slightly frustrating novel in that some of the loose ends aren't really tied up all that well. So I think as you read this novel, just, just go with the flow and maybe don't stop and ask these questions because I think actually we, we can't really answer them. <laughs> I think it's best just to keep going and let the, let the narrative lead you where it wants to. And do you think there is something significant about him being a donkey or is that, again, just something we're meant to go with? I think that for Lewis's readers, a donkey is a kind of um, unintelligent animal. Uh, and I don't want to suggest that Lewis is, is saying there's a hierarchy of animals, uh, but perhaps Lewis is saying that this is, this is not a good thing to be turned into. Um, why? I don't know. I mean, I think that... Um, if you like, it's it, 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 it's just a humiliation of some kind. But I'm not quite sure what the exact reason is. I'm, I'm not sure I see that question answered in this novel. And you don't think that Lewis is purporting some sort of pluralism or kind of suggesting that all religions are equally credible? You don't think that's what comes out when, when referring to Tash and the healing and all of that? I don't think Lewis in this novel really is engaging that question. If you think about it, how much do we know about Tash? How much do we know about what people mean by this? Actually, if you'd like, it's almost as if Tash is being introduced to serve some kind of purpose, and we don't need to know that much about him. So I don't think in this novel the whole issue of religious pluralism is being raised. I do think we come back to this in The Last Battle, though, where I think we see some issues being raised there. I think that um, Lewis doesn't really develop this point, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's very difficult to answer your questions on the basis of a narrative we find in this specific novel. Uh, there's a line in the book where it says, in Tashban, there's only one traffic regulation, which is that everyone who's less important has to get out of the way for everyone who is more important. Clearly, Lewis was exposing the inequalities in the Calamine capital, but was he also perhaps trying to highlight inequalities in his own society, do you think? I'm sure he was. I, I think that Lewis um, may well be hinting at um, some of the difficulties he sees, for example, in the British class system. I mean, again, Lewis was Irish. The Irish don't really have classes. And he would have noticed this um, from his presence in England, that there was a kind of implicit class system, which meant certain people were seen as being more important, not by merit, but rather by descent. So I think there are issues here. But there's also, of course, a, a, another point, which I think is, is, is rather significant, and that is that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, Lewis has been laying the foundations for thinking that actually what really matters is not your strength or anything like that, but rather your relationship to Aslan. So it may be that actually he's beginning to say that um, Christianity is a way of beginning to engage these social inequalities by saying, look, they don't really matter all that much. There's something much more important which lies beneath this. I suppose another area of inequality is perhaps the treatment of women, which we see to a certain extent, don't we, with 
both Aravis and Susan being forced to marry. Is that something that Lewis is trying to highlight, the kind of inequality of um, perhaps how women were treated even his, in his own day? I think Lewis is really talking about, if you like, the casual sexism of his own culture, that actually there's just this assumption that, uh, you know, women didn't have careers, they got married. You know, that's that sort of idea. And Lewis, I think, is protesting about that. And I think he would have expected his readers to to appreciate the point he's making here. And there are quite a lot of sort of casual sexist remarks, aren't there, throughout the book. So Rabadash says it's well known that women are as changeable as weathercocks. And then um, Corin, who is quite a, a, a nice character and you sort of you meant to like him. Um, but even he sort of talks about Queen Susan saying that she's more like an ordinary grown up lady and that she's, you know, she's not as good as Lucy. So there are kind of these remarks, aren't there? Um, but do you think Lewis purposefully paints these kind of brave, multi-dimensional female characters almost to go against the female stereotype we see that with Lucy um, we also see that with Aravis in this story I guess in in contrast to Lazreline who's potentially depicted as one of these kind of stereotypical um, gender stereotypes it's very hard to know um, because in in some ways Lewis is writing in a specific historical location in which certain what we now see as being very sexist assumptions are taken as routinely being true and on the one hand he's going with these on the other hand he's challenging them and I think that actually that's one of the reasons why Lucy is such an important character you know she, she clearly um, has the capacity to um, remold these things completely but I think Lewis really is, has a readership in mind who might share these sexist assumptions. Or rather, again, we now see them like this. At the time, they wouldn't have been seen like this. So there's a sense in which Lewis is doing two things, I think. One is, uh, is recognizing they are there, but the other is by the narrative he tells, he's beginning to subvert these and move things on. We've already seen, particularly in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, that Aslan is not depicted as a tame lion. He's not safe. Uh, but but there's a there's an encounter with Aravis which feels really quite surprising, even if you know that he's not a safe lion when he's tearing at her shoulders. What was Lewis's intention there? I I personally find that passage quite disturbing, but I'll tell you what I think. Um, uh, I I specialise in the study of Martin Luther. And one of the things that Luther talks about is that from time to time, God has to, in effect, um, remind us of the fact that, that without God, we are without hope. And one of the ways in which God does this is through what Luther calls anfechtung, which is basically a stripping away of all our security so that we're forced to face some very difficult questions and realize that God is the only one we can rely on. And Luther uses language, you know, of stripping away our defenses, of wounding us in order that we can discover God's healing. And maybe that's something of what's going on here. Um, I think that um, it is interesting to know, note that actually the language here that Lewis uses is very strongly reminiscent of 
by his wounds you have been healed. You know, this very strongly soteriological narrative that we find uh, relating to the cross, that Christ is wounded, and it's by his wounds that we are healed. And maybe this is a way of trying to bring home to us the, the, you know, the, the horror of those wounds and make us realize just how significant this is. There is a depiction, though, isn't there, that actually the wounds are tear for tear, throb for throb, blood for blood, um, that, like the stripes that Aravis put on her stepmother's slave. Uh, I guess in some ways sort of saying this is what you did to her, so I've done it to you. Do you think there's a sense in which Aslan's response then neglects to take grace into account? Is it is it a little bit more eye for eye, tooth for tooth? do you think? It does seem to be, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth here, doesn't it? Um, and um, it doesn't really, I think, um, echo the idea of grace. And I, again, it's one of those points in the novel where I have to say, I, I sort of put the book down and say, I wonder about this because it, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem quite right. So my assumption has to be, I have missed something because uh, clearly there's something there. What I think we might say is that maybe it's all about an integral theme of Christian spirituality, which you find very clearly in, for example, Ignatius of Loyola, but also actually in many evangelical writers, which is actually in order to appreciate what Christ suffered on our behalf, we need to have some way of trying to experience those pains for ourselves. And maybe that's what Lewis is getting at here. I guess if that encounter with Aslan is really difficult and quite hard to read, there's, there's another encounter where Aslan um, encounters Shasta. Would you say just a little bit about that? Because that is an amazing encounter. It's quite a long encounter. It's when he's got sort of stuck in it he's got lost behind all the other people and he meets Aslan for the first time. There are some really profound things that come out of that encounter, aren't there? I think that, that encounter and that dialogue is actually very, very significant. And it's all about, in effect, um, Aslan drawing alongside Shasta, who does not recognise him for um, what he is. And it's all about and gradual disclosure, gradual insight, and the realization of the tenderness, the, the compassion of Aslan. I, I come back to that narrative time and time again, I have to say. It's one of the most powerful and moving sequences in this novel. And it speaks to me of, of two biblical passages, actually. One of them, of course, being the call of Samuel. You know, Samuel hears this voice and, and doesn't work out what it is. And then he's told what it really is, and suddenly everything makes sense. Or again, think of the road to Emmaus, which I think is a very possible source for this particular um, narrative, which is in effect, you know, Christ, after his resurrection, walking with those who are talking about events, and they don't recognize him. And in effect, finally, they do in the breaking of the bread. And I, I see in this narrative, um, in effect, a tender disclosure of a tender Aslan. And that, I think, is very, very moving. And certainly that there are many commentators who would say this is one of the most uh, powerful and moving chapters or discussions in this whole book. So what image do you think we get of God in this story as a whole? Well, I think this is a very interesting question because... As I read this story, I think I can make sense of it if I say this. 
Maybe what Lewis is doing is saying, here is what you might expect Aslan to be like on the basis of pure reason. You know, in other words, you have to do certain things to get other things, and actually, you know, violence begets violence. And Lewis is beginning to set alongside that the idea of grace, namely, you get something for nothing because somebody else is generous, and also it's because somebody is wounded on your behalf that you are saved. And I think that we can begin to see here the, uh, the image of God as one who is very often misperceived. I think that's a very important point that Lewis does bring out here. But also that when you get to know this God, that's why the Shasta dialogue is so important. When you get to know this God, A, by traveling with him and B, by conversing with him, you begin to realize how tender and gracious and compassionate God is. So one way of reading this uh, book, which I personally find quite helpful, is to say, in effect, it's about moving away from a natural vision of God to a Christian vision of God. It's a transition from, I think God might be like this, to I realize God is actually like this. And that, I think, happens through an encounter with God. And of course, that builds on the the narrative of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the, you know, the children, in effect, come to love Aslan through encountering him. And do you think it's significant that that encounter happens to Shasta, who is this vulnerable child who, you know, at the beginning it says that his life was little better than slavery. Is it significant that it's him that, that Aslan is revealed to in, in this powerful way, do you think? Well, the image of slavery is very important because, in effect, um, what uh, Lewis is getting at here is being in bondage, being trapped, being unable to achieve anything. And then through this dialogue, through this journey with Aslan, things change. Uh, he begins to realize there are other possibilities. He begins to realize, you know, what Aslan is really like. And I think that is actually very significant because, again, it's a narrative of the little people, not just a child, but a child who comes from a background of enslavement. And, you know, the key point is that through Aslan, a better future beckons. And again, Lewis, Lewis does develop that theme at other points, but I think he does it particularly well here. What are we meant to make of Bree's revelation um, that Bree the horse, who says that he's lost everything towards the end of the novel? What, what are we meant to make of that? Uh, again, I think this fits in with uh, an idea I link with Luther, but I'm sure Lewis found it elsewhere, which is that in order to appreciate what really matters, you have to lose everything. That, in effect, the radical reevaluation of your life, your, your aspirations, your possessions happens best when you realize that actually, um, without them, you are less encumbered, that you are able to become the person you really meant to be, that actually your possessions can take you over. And again, that's a theme I see again and again in Luther, that we are, we are colonized, we're taken over by our possessions, by our longings, by our, our, our greed, a very important theme. And actually, if you like, redemption, discipleship, is about being able to master what once mastered us. In other words, breaking free from their slavery and being able to use them for some greater purpose. So my feeling is that once you are able to break the power 
of status, possessions, and so on, then you are free to become what you really are. And I think that's really how um, Brie becomes a, a very decent sort of horse, if I can put it like that. <laughs> Well, and the hermit says that, doesn't he? He says, you've lost nothing but your self-conceit. As long as you know you're nobody special, you'll be a very decent sort of horse. Does Lewis think that anyone is beyond redemption? Or is this story about the fact that kind of anyone can can turn back to God? So there's a, there's a line, isn't there, when Edmund says, even a traitor may mend, I have known one that did. I think that Lewis's gut instinct, if I can put it like that, is that no one lies beyond redemption. And indeed, um, throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, there are people who we're almost um, made to dislike, who turn out to be admirable people once Aslan's finished with them. So I think what Lewis is really doing is to ask us not to write anyone off, to try and see everyone as having a future in God's kingdom and in God's service. So maybe what Lewis is doing here um, through his emphasis on the importance of lowly people and also how the way very unpromising people are made into good things is to say, look, um, your natural instincts in judging people may be quite wrong. Don't judge people like that. Because in effect, God may be able to do things which quite surprise you. I mean, maybe Lewis has the conversion of St. Paul in mind here. You know, St. Paul begins by persecuting Christians. And maybe they were saying, oh, dear God, please take this man away from us. And instead, <laughs> God converts him. Maybe that's what Lewis is getting at here. Well, what a brilliant way to end this podcast that no one is beyond redemption. Thank you so much, Alistair. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. Next week, we'll be taking a break from our series to broadcast a special edition of the C.S. Lewis podcast.